Justice Barbara Jackson, thank you so much for coming in. I really appreciate it. It's nice to meet you. Very nice to meet you. I appreciate the invitation. So you've been to Asheville a number of times, I know. So so what brings you into town this time? I have an event over in Haywood County this evening, so it was really convenient for me to come through Asheville on the way there. What's the event going on? They are having a shindig. You know, I'm not sure exactly what it's going to entail, but it sounds like a large group of folks are going to get together and... They're going to hear some political speeches and have a little fun, get have some dinner together and enjoy some fellowship. So now we had scheduled an interview like maybe, I don't know, close to, well, maybe like three weeks ago. And uh, the hurricane got in the way, of course. Um, I was speaking with your press person and she had said that your area, I guess, in Raleigh was mostly spared. So that's good news. But you seemed very involved with what was going on, especially on the eastern part of the state. So how did friends and family fare? How, are, is everything okay? My family made out very well. You know, in Wake County, we were concerned it was going to look something like Hurricane Fran looked back in the 90s, which really devastated Wake County. But we dodged the bullet. My personal uh, property, my home, we only lost power for a couple of hours. I was supposed to be in Craven County and Carteret County the Monday after the storm came through, though. And I know friends I have in Craven County really experienced a lot of devastation in fact, our court was supposed to head to Craven, uh, to well, to Halifax, Pitt, and Craven counties Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of next week, and we've had to push that trip to the spring. So I know from your background that you went through UNC Chapel Hill and Duke University. For our listeners who don't know you, you've been on the Supreme Court for eight years now, and your law career spans time before that Court of Appeals, I believe, uh, six years six on the years. Court of Appeals. Yeah. So just tell our listeners a bit about your background, if you could. Well, I, I actually started my legal career at the Supreme Court. I was a law clerk for Burley Mitchell for a year, uh, which was wonderful experience. He's a fantastic judge, really common sense individual. So he was a great mentor. Uh, from there, I went to the governor's office. I worked for Governor Jim Martin for a year, had another fantastic mentor there, a man named Jim Trotter, who was his general counsel. That's actually when I met our chief justice. He and I worked together in the governor's office. So I we see. have a, a long work history together and a long friendship together. When I left there, I went to the Governor's Advocacy Council for Persons with Disabilities. That was a statewide practice. In fact, I had clients in Asheville. I had clients out in Henderson County. So I traveled as far east as, uh, oh gosh, a Hotsky. Traveled all over the state, working with a lot of kids with disabilities, um, people in our four state psychiatric hospitals. I really got a good exposure during that. What would you say were the most formative times for you in terms of informing your work? You know, that's when I really realized how interested I was in public service. I, you know, I left there and went into private practice for four years, but I just didn't really feel like that was, um, that was my calling. I felt that public service was a lot more of a calling. I see. And after that, I went and joined Cherie Berry's general counsel's office. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for, sure. For four Labor years Commissioner that, Cherie right? Berry, which a lot of people mispronounce Sherry Berry. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's the woman on the elevators. That's exactly. how people know her. Yeah. So you were elected to the Court of Appeals, eight year term, I believe, six years in. You ran for the state Supreme Court. What made you decide to make that jump up to that next level? You know, it was interesting. When I ran for the Court of Appeals, Nobody asked me to do that. I had seen um, decisions I disagreed with. I thought, you know what, if, if my peer group was starting to run, and I thought, you know, if they can do that, I can do it. I went through a program called the Institute for Political Leadership and ran my campaign in 2004. In 2010, I had a number of people approach me and say, you know, that Justice Brady is retiring. He's not going to seek reelection. We think you should run. And I had worked there as a law clerk, so I knew what the position entailed. And I was really honored to be asked by some, some of my peers to run for that position and, and decided to do so and was privileged to be elected. 
What made you decide to run for re-election this time around? You know, it, it's been a great experience. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's just an honor to serve. Being a judge, and particularly a justice, to me is the, the highest honor you can have as a lawyer in this state. And I hope I have done some good work. I've certainly tried to. One of the things I've really tried to work on, in addition to opinions, is working on court technology. The Chief Justice appointed me to his uh, Commission on the Administration of Law and Justice in 2015. I chaired the Technology Committee. We have brought to fruition a new website for the court system, which is a work in progress. I certainly encourage any of your listeners, you know, let us know if you like something, if you think it's great, if you see other things that you think need improvement. You know, it's it's not something that's a static entity. We want to continue to improve that website and continue to improve access to justice through a mobile-friendly website that we did not have in the past. I see. Yeah. So that and that's one of the things that you're you're running on is this uh, improvement in court technology, right? Yeah, um, judges don't have a lot of issues they can run on. <laughs> you know, in talking with uh, your 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 press person. Uh, y- we were talking about, you know, what could I discuss with you? You have a bit of a disadvantage as the incumbent. I mean, there, in some ways, that's an advantage. In other ways, there are things that you can't necessarily talk about, right, when you're when you're giving interviews. Exactly. You know, we have a code of judicial conduct, which is a very serious thing. We don't talk about cases that are before the court. We are very circumscribed in discussing our opinions. I'm not going to tell you what I think about what's going on in current events. You know, certainly I'm human. I have an opinion, but it really doesn't guide what I do as a member of the court. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm obligated to follow the law no matter what I think about who the parties are that are before us. Whatever my personal opinions are, that can't guide my decisions. We're speaking two days after these hearings for Brett Kavanaugh in the U.S. Supreme Court. So for our listeners who are less aware of this current race, you know, here in North Carolina, what are the stakes in a state Supreme Court race, do you think? Well, you know, we're the the court of last resort for North Carolina. The U.S. Supreme Court is the court of last resort for the United States. And that is the only place that one of our decisions can go to. And it has to then involve an issue involving uh, United States constitutional law. We're the last word on state constitutional law, unless it implicates a federal right as well. So it's very important. And next year, one of the things that we're going to hear are the termination of parental rights cases. We will be the court that you go into district court, whether or not your right to your child is terminated, that instead of going to the Court of Appeals, it's going to come straight to the Supreme Court. That's about 100 more cases a year for our court, which is tremendously impactful. And I have the advantage in this this race. I'm the only sitting uh, incumbent judge. Mm -hmm. I'm the only candidate with judicial experience. And I actually sat on those types of cases when I was a judge on the Court of Appeals for a number of years. Have you had a chance to meet and discuss with your opponents at all? We've been at a number of forums. Sure. Yeah. Um, there was the defense attorneys in Greensboro yesterday had a forum. Yeah. Um, and they had separate questions for each one of us. I see. Yeah. Now, so you'll be running against a Republican and Chris Anglin. And that's been much debated, of course. He was sort of a last minute entry into the race. He had been a uh, registered Democrat changed his party affiliation to run as a Republican. And this, the first time that there's going to be a Supreme Court race uh, in recent memory where there's going to be party labels. So you'll have a Republican in Chris Anglin and a Democrat in Anita Earls. Do you have any opinion on, and I don't know if you can get into it, on how this Chris Anglin situation came about? I mean, it's it, it, it's been argued by many in your party that he kind of came into the race to split the Republican vote. What do you think about that? I think you'd have to ask him what his motivations are. You know, I, I, I know he I've heard him yesterday say he encouraged people to get out and vote because it's an important election. And yet he didn't vote in the primary this year. 
And you can look at my voting record. I've voted in every primary, every runoff primary, every municipal election since I've been registered to vote. And I've been registered as a Republican my entire adult life. The state Republican Party executive director, Dallas Woodhouse, has said that Chris Anglin is kind of the enemy. He's known for pretty strong language, Woodhouse is. You know, um, does that bother you? Do you think this is a threat to your campaign and, and reelection? You know, if, if, if I had the opportunity to write the script for the election, I would have chosen to have judicial primaries. But that was not my choice. I'm not a legislator. I'm a judge. So I you could, weren't happy about the General Assembly's decision to, to eliminate the primaries? You know, I ran in 2004 as uh, and, and of course, the past two elections I ran in were nonpartisan elections. In right. 2004, we had a primary with four individuals. I came out on top of that primary. So I'm very confident that had there been a primary, I would have prevailed in the primary and I would have been very comfortable with that process. What about having judicial labels in front of them? Do you think this is good? Do you think uh, Supreme Court races should be nonpartisan or do you think it gives people the information they need? It's a really tough question to answer when you're still in the campaign. I certainly appreciate the position that some folks have that it does provide you with some additional information. I do worry about the perception of our courts. I would not want our courts to be perceived as being political. And I think there's some proof in the statistics with our court. With the state Supreme Court over the past seven years, if you look at the statistics, our decisions have been unanimous between 75 and 85 percent of the time. And I think that speaks to a court that's really not a partisan court. We work hard to reach unanimous decisions when we can. Certainly, there are points when we all can't come to agreement. We recognize that. We've all taken the same oath to the Constitution of the state in the United States. We take it seriously. And in those instances, we write separate opinions, whether it's a dissent or a concurrence. But we think it's good for the stability of our court if there's a mutual decision that can be reached to reach it. How much do you think partisanship infects maybe just... The inherent bias of any justice, whether it's you or anyone. I think it's hard for me to speak to other people. I think I've been, I hope, successful in leaving it at the door. You know, my husband's a Democrat. I have lots of friends who are Democrats. I don't look upon people differently because of their political affiliation. I think one of the things that troubles me sometimes about the political disputes we see now is that we all have so much more in common than we have not in common. We're citizens here of North Carolina. We're citizens of the United States. I think generally we all want things that are good for the state of North Carolina. We may just have a different thought about how we get there. I was looking back on your social media and I saw a photo of you and your husband together and he was wearing an NC State shirt and it looked like you had on Carolina blue. That is right. So you're you're a house divided politically as well as (laughs) with your sporting teams. And, And truthfully, I think the sporting stuff is harder. (laughs) Um, I cannot persuade him to cheer for Carolina ever. No. Wow. Not even when they're playing. I mean, not even when they're not playing. No, it's, you know, it's, and I will cheer for state. I grew up in Raleigh. I grew up about a mile from Carter Finley. I'm happy to cheer for state, but yeah, I don't get any traction there. What about Duke? No, no, no. Yeah. You you had, you had gone to Duke. I've got, right. I've got a master's in judicial studies from Duke. I am happy to cheer for the football team. I really like coach (laughs) Cutcliffe. Basketball is a little tougher, but I have, I have said, go Duke a few times in basketball now, which I had never done previously. So I'm, I'm trying to come around because I really, the law school there is fantastic. And, and I really appreciate the fine postgraduate education that I got there. Back to your judicial philosophy. If you have a judicial philosophy that you can articulate, what would you say that is? I think we have to be cognizant of the limitations of the judicial branch. And I believe that it's to interpret the law and to exercise judicial restraint, to be fair and impartial and adhere to the rule of law. 
Now, one of the quotes that I see mentioned a lot is that, you know, judges are meant to interpret the law rather than legislate from the bench. What does that mean to you? What is what is legislating from the bench? And can you point to any examples of that that you've seen either on these courts or others? I think it's imposing our or substituting our judgment for the legislature. I think we have to be careful that we have very different roles, both of which are equally important, but they're different. And I just finished reading a very interesting book called The Most Dangerous Branch. If you go back and you look at the Federalist Papers, the judiciary is referred to as the least dangerous branch because we have the power of neither the pen nor the purse. We just have to count on the other two branches to go along with what we say. This book, The Most Dangerous Branch, though, basically condemns both political parties, um, justices on the U.S. Supreme Court from both parties, both liberals and conservatives, for substituting their judgment for the legislature. And it's it's an interesting book going back to, um, it's, I think, the first case it really gets into is the Dred Scott decision back in the 1850s. So I thought it was a thoughtful treatment that really does require judges to be very careful in the way we exercise our power. And one of the judges on the Fourth Circuit, Harvey Wilkinson, who taught at my class at Duke, said uh, one of the phrases he used was judicial modesty, that we really have to be careful that we have a lot of power that we can exercise if we take it upon ourselves, that we have to be cognizant of that fact and just say, hey, wait a minute, what am I doing? I'm looking at one case here. It's got one set of facts. It's got a couple lawyers. How far do we want to expand this decision? And how tough is it to sort of I guess on the state level, probably easier maybe, but how tough is it to block out the noise, the noise of the media, the noise of, you know, activism, all of that stuff? I suspect it is easier on the state level. Mm -hmm. You know, you sort of look at the political process, and I'm very grateful that I'm running for office and not sitting for a confirmation hearing right now. That seems to be much easier, as tough as it is. But it's what you take an oath to do. You just have to. And if you can't uphold that oath, you're in the wrong business. You had said before that you can't really comment on current events. We had these hearings, you know, just the other day with Brett Kavanaugh. I don't know if you can speak to it, but is there a way that you can speak sort of broadly to what you thought of what we witnessed, just in terms of how that process went, how you felt watching it, anything like that? I don't want to comment substantively. I don't think that would be appropriate. But I I think for anybody watching, no matter which person you believe, or if you believe both, or if you disbelieve both, or if you're watching anything, I think it's a, it's hard to watch the process. It's, it's, um, I would love to see if our judicial selection process could be more amicable. And that's one thing I, I've appreciated in North Carolina in the past. And, and of course, I, the, the last two times I ran, public financing was still in place. So mm-hmm. large amounts of money were not being spent on our judicial campaigns. But I really felt like our, the two races that I ran in were quite amicable mm-hmm. with the the two gentlemen who were my opponents, one of whom is now the senior resident Superior Court judge here in Buncombe County, Judge Thornburg, and then Judge Hunter, who enjoyed a long and very highly regarded career on our Court of Appeals after serving in our legislature. We've seen partisanship get more pronounced, it seems. That's my perception. Is that yours as well? Like looking back through your history, do you think that's happening? You know, I think it, it has to some degree. And I really enjoy social media. I enjoy Facebook. I enjoy Twitter. But I think it's much easier for people just to fire off at people when it's anonymous and we don't have to sit down and have a face-to-face conversation with them. There are things that I see people say on there from both political parties that in a million years I could not conceive of saying to another person. And I think that's really unfortunate. I think we're losing a lot of our civility. You know, again, it's a specific, so maybe you can't comment. But does that mean that, like, when you saw what, for instance, Chef Flake did yesterday and in sort of voting to confirm Kavanaugh 
through the committee, but asking for an FBI investigation. And it seemed like he got together with this Democrat, Chris Coons. Was that an encouraging step, do you think, like in, in a sort of show of bipartisanship? Again, I'm really reluctant to comment on that whole process. You know, I, what I'd comment on from my own court, again, is I think that we do have a good collegial court. And I think things that help with our court are the fact that we eat lunch together. When we're holding court, we will always eat lunch together and have conversations and find out how folks are doing, um, whether it's in conference or whether we're holding a session of court. So we do sit down with each other and break bread together. And, and one of the things, too, that I think makes that a little bit easier for a court than for a legislature, and we're deliberating on our cases, it's not under the hot lights of the media. You know, it's we are able to do that in a, a confidential setting. So we're not sort of being micro targeted or looked at. We come out with our decision and you see the final product, but you don't necessarily see the sausage making that goes on behind it. Mm -hmm. If you look at this race purely politically, the stakes are pretty high because right now there's a, a four to three split in favor of Democrats or more liberal justices on the state Supreme Court. Uh, were you to lose, it would go to five to two. Does the partisan label really inform the decisions? I don't think so. And I think one thing that's been interesting, there have been a couple of folks that have written about our court and have noted that with relatively few exceptions, we our opinions don't break down along party lines, which I think is a positive thing. I think it demonstrates that we're looking at the law, we're interpreting the law, and we're following our constitutional obligations. What are some instances where they have broken down along partisan lines? Some of the, the heated disputes between the legislative branch and the executive branch. There's I been see. a couple of those. But then there have been some of the intra-executive uh, branch disputes when you had the State Board of Education and the superintendent had a dispute, we had a unanimous decision in one of those, and then we had a 5-2 decision in one of those. So I see, yeah. Those were a little bit different, sort of the, the sort of high-profile political cases that broke down in different ways. Why do you think that is like, in, for instance, there was the case where uh, the state Supreme Court ruled in favor of Governor Roy Cooper in his dispute over the Elections and Ethics Board. And I believe that was a four to three, you know, and it broke down Democrat, Republican. This is a dispute between Democrats and Republicans. I know that your opinion would be that this was wrongly decided because you wrote in the dissenting opinion, or I think you signed on to the dissenting opinion. Where do you think the Democratic justices were wrong? Well, I think, and I'm reluctant since I didn't author the opinion, and we usually let our opinions stand for themselves. But I think maybe looking at history is helpful because this mm -hmm. is not... I don't think we're looking at an, a unique moment in time, and I'm somewhat informed from having worked for Governor Martin because there were disputes between the legislature and Governor Martin back in the late 80s and early 90s. And, you know, the Supreme Court grappled with those disputes. And, of course, at that point in time, the Supreme Court was comprised of seven registered Democrats. And sometimes they unanimously ruled in favor of the legislature, and sometimes some folks broke off and ruled in favor of the governor. But most of those disputes were decided in favor of the legislature at that point in time. So those are our case law precedents. You know, and then if you look during the, the more recent time frame, there was a dispute between Governor McCrory and the legislature. So you've got a legislature controlled by Republicans. You've got a gubernatorial office controlled by a Republican. And, and the court ruled partially in favor of the legislature and partially in favor of the governor. So it's not unusual to see disputes over separation of powers, which is sort of the broader, I think, the broader term rather than necessarily looking at it as purely a political dispute disputes over separation of power coming before the court. I see. Yeah, we've seen a lot of separation of powers cases come before the courts recently. You started in the Court of Appeals at a time when Democrats controlled the legislature that that shifted over to the Republicans. 
So it's been a lot of change. What has changed on the legislative side, in your opinion, that you've seen? Is, is it any different? It's, you know, well, I think one thing that, that is objectively different, no matter how you look at it, is you, ha- you do have in the legislature a veto-proof majority, which we did not have between 2005 and 2010 when I was at the Court of Appeals. Now, one thing I'll, I'll say about my own judicial philosophy is it has not changed. It was the same when I was at the Court of Appeals as it is now. I firmly believed in judicial restraint and that the legislature had a different role than the courts do. And one of the decisions that came in front of us during that time frame was Goldston. I didn't author it, but that had to do with the General Assembly's ability to go into the Highway Trust Fund and also the governor's ability to get into emergency funds. And the part that we ruled about in favor of the legislature was that one let General Assembly can't bind a subsequent General Assembly, which is a pretty well-settled principle in law. I see. So that would get us to these amendments where there's an interesting amendment before voters where they're asking state voters to cap the income tax rate at a lower rate than it currently is, which would sort of tie the hands of future legislatures. Do you think that that is unconstitutional? That case is still pending. And it's interesting. So the voters... Six amendments are going to go on to the, are on the ballot for voters to decide on. And the yeah. posture that they're in is that four of those amendments came before the court for temporary restraining orders. And the court declined to impose temporary restraining orders. But they are all four still live cases I see. in the Superior Court. So I can't comment on them at all. I see, including the one that has to do with appointing judges. And right. Then more broadly speaking, do you have an opinion on... All of the changes, like there's been many changes to um, the way judges are selected in the state. Do you think that there should be all this tinkering of the way that judges are elected? That's a hard question. Yeah, I I think there's many different ways to choose judges, whether it's by appointment, whether it's by election, partisan or nonpartisan, whether it's by legislative appointment, which Virginia and South Carolina have in varying degrees, commissions. uh, There's this Missouri plan. One thing I think is difficult is to completely remove politics from the equation. You know, if you, you have the appointed system and what happens in those, my understanding is, is that folks that want to be judges get on the commission and they're on there for a few years and then they leave the commission and then they say, hey, friend from the commission, I want to be a judge. Legislatures, when they do the appointing, you find that South Carolina in particular, there's a lot of former uh, legislators who go onto the bench. It's like anything else. It's I don't know how you get the politics out of it. I do think that yeah. there's a certain egalitarian egalitarianism to North Carolina's electing judges. Any of us can say, hey, I want to run for judge uh-huh. and put our name on the ballot. Now, whether it's a better idea to run it in a nonpartisan fashion or a partisan fashion, I frankly don't know the answer. You know, I've got a lot yeah. of friends who are religious about voting. They always vote, but they really firmly feel that we should be in nonpartisan elections because as judges, our decisions absolutely should not be partisan. Right. I have other friends who feel that we should have partisan labels because it's more information for the voter. And I struggle with that. You know, I really do. You know, I, there are certain things to me as a candidate that I found easier about running in a nonpartisan race mm-hmm. that are just a little bit more difficult about running in a partisan race. Because see, you yeah. really do need to be very clear that you're not taking partisanship onto the bench. There have been discussions about switching over from an election system to sort of an up or down vote, like if a, a justice has retention. been running. Yeah, retention election. Uh, so it sounds like you, you feel like having people elected 
and run against other people is maybe a more egalitarian system? Well, and the good thing about retention systems that I think usually happens is usually you have to win one election before there's a retention election. And the good thing about that then is is it does sometimes take some of the political nature of the the beast out of it because you're basically saying, okay, if this judge is doing a good job, we're going to keep this judge. And if this judge is not doing a good job, we've got an opportunity to get rid of this judge. I could be wrong. I'm doing this by memory, but I believe uh, it was Chief Justice Mark Martin who maybe proposed some sort of idea like that. I know he favors merit selection. He absolutely merit does. Merit selection, right, um, right. And, and we were in Asheville last year, not this year, but the year before, and he proposed that in his state of the judiciary speech uh, at the Bar Association. I have some questions that are kind of basic about the state Supreme Court, but how does one become the chief justice? That's by election. It is, I see. It's a separate office. And if there's a vacancy, the justice gets appointed. And that's what happened with our past two chief justices. Chief Justice Martin took Chief Justice Parker's place. She had to retire when she turned 72. And oh, that was in August of 2014. And he was appointed by Governor McCrory. And he had already filed to run for the office because we knew she was going to have to retire. So there was, it was the end of her term and there was going to be a vacancy in the office. So it has to be that seat. So right. could you ascend to Chief Justice? I could if I ran for it. I would, I, ha- I would either have to run for it or be appointed. And, and different states do that differently. Some states, the justices themselves select who is going to be their chief. And sometimes they rotate through the court. And the person doesn't stay in that position for a long time. They'll be in it for two or three years. And how much significantly more power does the chief justice have than the other justices? I'm not sure if I'd say power as much as responsibility. He, I see. He really has a lot on his shoulders. He works closely with the administrative office of the courts. And we have 100 county clerks. We have over 500 elected officials in the judicial branch, over 600 appointed officials, 6,500 employees. We're in every county. Particularly, you really see how important it is to have a great great chief justice like ours when you've got an event like the hurricane that just came through. He was on top of it, putting out emergency orders. Uh, What happened in some of the most hard-hit counties in the state was they put out an order that nothing had to be filed until October 1st. So, you know, that takes some of the immediate pressure off of the legal community out there and and folks that were worried about, oh, all this awful stuff's going on, and oh, my Lord, I have a legal deadline that I've got to hit to. What's the thing that people misunderstand the most about the Supreme Court? Well, one thing is we don't have witnesses. I mean, it it was interesting. I watched the show How to Get Away with Murder, and I, I had to give up on it at a certain point because when the lead character was defending someone who was on death row, she had her client in the courtroom at the Supreme Court with her, and that just would never happen. Sometimes we do have people's clients come into court with them, but it's the exception rather than the rule. The way that the cases are presented to us is each side gets 30 minutes. It's typically one attorney, and they make their argument to the judges on the bench. There's seven of us. We call it argue on what's called a cold record on appeal. And then we issue written decisions. Ordinarily, there's a written opinion. And, um, When I was at the Court of Appeals, they're our workhorse court. They each write about 100 opinions a year, which is the functional equivalent of about two term papers a week. You had mentioned that television show. A part of this interview, and I'll I'll bring it back to more serious stuff too, but part of this interview is just people getting to know you. And I noticed on your social media, you were really into the Emmys. What will our listeners like to know about you personally? Well, I'm a pop culture fan. I enjoy going into the court and sharing my pop culture trivia with them. I, I actually see. was on Jeopardy in 1996. Oh, wow. Yeah. I did not win, but I did get a Daily Double in the category of politics, correct? Hey, that's so a good was, one. To I get. was happy. Yeah. <laughs> I won a Broyhill Entertainment Armoire. 
And the funny thing about that is that I paid almost as much in taxes on it as I would have if I'd gone over to High Point to purchase it because the jack up the manufacturers suggested retail price so much. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Wake County. Cool. My parents uh, moved to North Carolina when I was three years old. My dad was with IBM, and it was part of that migration. So you've mentioned before you're the only judge running in this race. Talk a little bit about your opponent's experience, if you would, and and how, how you think that might be a disadvantage. I think clearly one of my opponents has a lot of experience and has been licensed as an attorney in the same area as long as I have. One of them has less than 10 years of experience. And in that instance, you know, our chief justice is the youngest person that's ever been elected to our court. He was 35 when he was elected, and he already had six years of experience as a judge. I think that's a pretty stark gap. But I think the reason that it's important to look at judicial experience is that when we come onto the Supreme Court, you start out as the junior justice. You're the secretary for the court. And I did that for about two years. And if I'm reelected on January 1st, I come in and I'm ready to go. There's no learning curve. There's no downside. And I can keep working on things that are important like court technology and trying to push some of these things out. You know, I'll have a ton of work, especially with these new termination of parental rights cases coming in, but I've got command of the subject matter of the court down. And I can focus on some other things that will help the community as well. And I really think technology is a great equalizer for the court system. We have so many people of modest means and so many people who historically would have qualified for help from legal aid that no longer have that available. And if we have technology available for them, if we can help guide them through the process of going to the court system or make that, it's never going to be pleasant to go to court for the most part. But if we can make it more pleasant or less painful through providing information for them. And when I was chairing this technology committee for the commission, the first thing I did every meeting was I held up my cell phone. And just to, just to point out the importance of getting as much information as possible onto our mobile devices to be able to interact with the community. How much does faith play into your background and, and into your philosophy, judicial philosophy? For me, it would be very hard to do this job if you didn't have faith in, for me, for faith in God. You know, I, I certainly understand the separation of church and state, but we deal with some very dark things. One of my law clerks at the Supreme Court was a very sweet young woman, and she turned over her first draft of a case to me, and it didn't have any facts in it. And it was because it was a sex offense case, and it was a really tough set of facts. And I gave it back to her and I said, you know, we really do have to include the facts. But one of the things that's really troubling about what we deal with is how many children show up in our cases, whether they're crime victims or whether they've been neglected or sometimes involved as, as perpetrators in the juvenile justice system. It's really tough to see, and it was something that really surprised me when I came onto the Court of Appeals was just how many points were touching kids in the court system. For me, it gives me comfort to be able to pray about these things and just to, to look to a higher power for wisdom and guidance when I need it. And that's with your job. And then how about in your personal life? How has, how has it guided you and, uh, or helped you throughout your life, would you say? For me, it was a big decision to run for the Court of Appeals. And so my mom, who is, is still alive, who unfortunately has late-stage dementia, and my dad passed away about a decade ago, but they were both around for my first Court of Appeals run, and I was not married at the time. So my mom never saw a half-full glass, never. She was, I used to call her the Princess of Doom and Gloom. Although she was completely supportive of me, wonderful person, and my dearest friend. But I came to her and my dad and told them that I thought I was going to run for the Court of Appeals. And she didn't say anything negative. 
And I just, you know, I just felt like that was so much of a message to me that this is the right time to do this. This is the right thing to do. So I do, I try to listen for where God plays a role in my life. And to me, that was, that was definitely one of those points because my mother just never, ever would have been positive about something if it really wasn't something that wasn't meant to be, which doesn't say that I thought I was necessarily going to win that race. But, you know, I had, that was a great thing. I got into that 2004 campaign and I had no idea what was going to happen. It it was one of those funny years when due to redistricting, we had a July primary and a November election and didn't file for office until April. But it was fun. You know, I didn't raise much money. So my parents were traveling across the state. We would each go different directions and they helped me with the campaign. It was a great family experience. But I just sort of looked on it like if I win, wonderful. If I don't, this has been a tremendous learning experience and I can take it to the next time I choose to do something. You mentioned redistricting, and that's, of course, been in the courts a lot over the past 10 years. Um, That's one of those issues I think fell down along party lines when it came before the state Supreme Court. What do you think about the job of the General Assembly so far in drawing districts uh, for the state? We actually still have a redistricting case pending in our court. So that that's just one of those topics you can't yeah. comment which, on. Which one is that, if you could refresh my memory? Uh, Dixon v. Rocho. Oh, Dixon v. Rocho is still there. It, it was back. Procedurally, it came back to our court. We remanded it to the trial court. The trial court made a ruling, and then it's come back to our court. Any comment just about how much this has been before the court? I mean, how much time is this taken from what you guys are being asked to rule on, I guess? You know, they're they're redistricting cases like every other case that implicates constitutional rights are very important cases. So we need to spend time and attention on any case that implicates constitutional rights. Have you ever seen this many times when the legislature and there's been this power struggle between the legislature and like, for instance, the Governor Cooper, the Democrat in office? I think you could go back and look at Governor Martin in the legislature and you would see a number of cases back during that time frame. There were quite a few instances of separation of power struggles back during that administration. I see. It's easy to like, you know, to kind of live in the moment and think that things are as bad as they've ever been. So from your perspective, as we've been through this before, this sort of thing. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's hard for me to say precisely because, of course, I was 30 years younger then and observed it, but wasn't in the court to observe what was going on. But there there have been intra-party struggles, too. I know there were struggles between Superintendent Etheridge and Governor Hunt over education. More recently, there were there were struggles between uh, Superintendent Atkinson and Governor Purdue over education. So there there have been separation of powers struggles are nothing new. I can tell you love your job, but it's it's also a job. I'm, I'm sure uh, there are some grueling aspects of it. And you know, watching all this Supreme Court on the federal level, you know, we hear about the terms beginning like. Their new term will begin October 1st, I believe. What What is the life of a state Supreme Court justice? Is, is it the same? Are there terms? And and is it similar in that respect? It, it is. We started back the, the last week in August, and we had 20 cases, which is one of the heavier caseloads that we've had since I've been a justice on the court. When I was a law clerk, the court routinely handled 20 to 27 cases. But one of the things that's changed a lot has to do with criminal law. At that point in time, every life sentence in a murder case came straight to the Supreme Court. And then every capital case was heard at the Supreme Court, which is still the case. But there were a lot of uh, death sentences being imposed back in the 1990s. And that's not currently the case. So those are two things that have changed the court. But our docket has been increasing steadily since I joined the court in 2011. And again, it's going to increase dramatically next year with the termination of parental rights cases. We run from like last week in August 
through May. If we need to add a session in June, we do that. And then usually we use like June, July, early August to catch up. Would having more justices be helped by that? And I'm asking about something very controversial. Of course, there's been rumors about a court packing maneuver uh, by the Republican legislature to add two more seats onto the state Supreme Court. Do you have an opinion on that? And do you think that's something where like separating the, the politics from it would more justices help? I think at this point in time, we've been able to manage our workload quite effectively. I can't speculate, you know, and, and, and again, we each have our legislature has a role. The court has a role. And I wouldn't want to speculate about what they may or may not do. I have no idea. But I know we're handling our workload effectively right now. I saw in a, in a previous article written about you that, and I'm not sure if you were quoted accurately, but you had said that you try not to speak with lawmakers as much as possible. Is that right? Yeah, I've really tried, especially because because there's so much litigation going on. You know, I just wouldn't want somebody to have the appearance of impropriety. Yeah, and that's tough, I know, because I, I know from your social media that you, you go to all these GOP events and stuff. You'll have a photo taken with, like, a George Holding or, or somebody like that, and that gets to campaigning. Like, how tough is it to campaign and to keep the campaign separate from the job, which, of course, in the campaign, you have to be partisan on some level in terms of getting people out. Well, you do and you don't. I have never encouraged people to vote wholesale for my political party. I don't think that you can do that under the Code of Judicial Conduct. My reading of the Code of Judicial Conduct is that I can endorse other judicial candidates, and that's it. And that's where I have stuck to. Now, do I have friends? I have friends in the legislature from both political parties and have had, you know, law school classmates, people that I've known for a long time. But I stay away from endorsing people, although, you know, of course I get pictures taken with them, but I've had pictures on Facebook and mm-hmm. other social media, for, again, from people from both political parties, because I know folks from both parties quite well. Now, you've run in a number of campaigns before. How has it changed? I mean, I know um, there's a lot of talk about money and politics, how much how much time candidates now have to devote to just fundraising. Is that is is it challenging? That how that's a huge change from public yeah. financing. In public financing, you know, in the first year that I ran, I did not qualify for public financing, so I ran my campaign on a shoestring. But the second time I ran, when I ran for the Supreme Court, I qualified. Well, what was nice was I started fundraising in September of two thousand and nine, and then was finished by the primary in May of twenty ten. That was the cutoff date, and then from May until November, all I had to do was worry about contacting voters and connecting with voters. That was it. Whereas when you have no public financing and you're, you're basically tasked with running a statewide campaign and doing all of your own fundraising, it is a much, much more difficult task because you've got to call so many more people and solicit so many more donations and, and that kind of thing. And it's, I think for many of us in the judicial branch, it's not necessarily our natural go-to comfort place. Right. I think if you're attracted to being an appellate court judge, you might be more introverted. I'm very happy sitting in front of a computer commuting with Westlaw and doing research and writing. Uh So it's a little bit less comfortable for me to call somebody up and say, hey, I need your help with my campaign. So it kind of puts you in an unnatural role a little bit. It does. And then some of the people who are most familiar with your work that Mm -hmm. you might think would be great to contact, I frankly don't contact people that have cases in front of the court. Yeah. I'm careful about not doing that. What are the joyful parts of that Like, and about being a justice? Well, you know, the great thing about going out and campaigning And the very good thing about it is you travel around the whole state. So one time, I think we had scheduled me to be here talking to you, and that 
I was out in Macon County in Franklin, and then I was in Transylvania County that night. And I had a nice gap of time between the two, so I drove through the Nantahala Forest. And I hadn't, I'd been driven through Pisgah, but I hadn't driven through Nantahala. It was so beautiful. You get the opportunity to drive around the state and really enjoy the natural beauty of the state. And I always like it when my GPS takes me on back roads and meet people. And, and our people in North Carolina are just very, very friendly and warm. And you learn what people in different areas of the state are doing so that when you have a case come to you from Macon County, from Bertie County, you have a person in mind that you associate with that county. So it's not just an abstraction. And then you meet people, you know, with different concerns, of course. Um, you had mentioned earlier that we share more in common, I think, than we we are different. I've heard a comment from a lawmaker out here in Western North Carolina that people out here are almost more similar to like people in Tennessee than they are maybe with people in the eastern part of the state. So from traveling around campaigning and just with your work, have you have you learned different sort of broader things that you were surprised about? Like people had different concerns and you were aware of from like, you know, growing up in Wake County and that sort of thing? I think that's something I've learned throughout my career. That began in the governor's office. And one of the things I worked on there was clemency and just dealing with the families of some of the folks who were seeking clemency. One of the the people that called me my first week, there was a woman whose son was in, in jail for a very serious drug charge. And she needed him to get out because she had very poor health. When she called me, though, and she telephoned me, and then she was trying to write down my phone number. And I had not talked with a person who had these limitations at this point. And she was, I was about 29 years old at the time. She really had a hard time just writing down my phone number, just a seven-digit phone number. And I met with her later and everything. She was a very sweet lady. But it was you could see that she was struggling from a, a sort of a developmental standpoint. And then when I went and worked with GACPD, the Governor's Advocacy Council for Persons with Disabilities, again, that was a statewide practice. And it was a very good experience because I was literally all over the state, all four of our state psychiatric hospitals, which at the time were Morganton, Wake County, Umstead and Butner, and then Cherry Hospital down in Goldsboro, in all of those hospitals, and working with people with serious mental health issues. And you don't know, I mean, you're, you're talking to somebody and they might haul off and hit you. Now, I did not get hit, but mm-hmm. you just know that that can happen. And in schools across the state, and you see, you know, of course, growing up in Wake County and the high school that I went to opened up my junior year. So I went to a brand new high school with air conditioning. But then you're out in lower wealth counties where the conditions are not good. The schools are tough. It's tough for those schools to provide special education services to the kids, but they're very important services to provide. So you kind of, you know, you kind of balance out how hard you're going to push them and what you can get because right. you know that they've got the limitations too. What would you like voters to know when they go into their voting booth in November or earlier? <laughs> or earlier, exactly. Yeah. You know, I, I have been so honored to serve at the court now for almost eight years as a judge for close to 14. I've been in North Carolina since I was three years old. I've done my best to render fair and impartial justice, adhering to the rule of law. That's my only commitment. That's the most important commitment any of us can have as a judge. And that's what I pledge to continue doing. Well, Justice Barbara Jackson, thank you so much. Thank you.